Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the sounds of families and children and the voices that sang this morning. The evidence, Father, that you are working here with us today with families and and all those who've gathered. That you have assembled us, Father, for good purposes, to be trained up, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. To be useful to you, to glorify your name, to serve you, to take the message of the truth of the gospel to the nations of the world as you permit. And to make that, Father, a priority in our life, knowing your return is imminent and we have but a short while to serve you. These are the things, Father, that we come to remember every Sunday so that the world will not carry us away with diversions, with cares and worries and pleasures and riches and things that will distract us from the mission. We know we have needs, and you do too, Father, and you meet them with great blessing. I pray, Father, that what we learn as we listen to Paul teaching a church in his day that had been distracted, we, Father, will see opportunity to turn from our distractions and to follow you more faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Today we move into a new section of the book. The letter of 1 Corinthians has some very distinct breaks, and we're at one of those breaks. Chapter 5 begins the second major section of the letter. In the first section, in chapters 1 through 4, we watched Paul speaking to the Corinthians about their pride and about their arrogance and their spiritual immaturity. But that's just been a setup for where he's really going in this letter. In those earlier chapters, he was addressing the underlying cause for a lot of specific troubles and specific missteps that are taking place in Corinth. Arrogance and pride are so dangerous in the lives of Christians because they become excuse for us in doing whatever we want and then thinking ourselves okay because we do so. Well, Paul has disabused the notion that they can live in arrogance and that their selfishness and their pride is acceptable. He did that in chapters 1 through 4. They are not wise, Paul said. They are foolish. They are not powerful and successful, Paul says. They are living in their flesh like spiritual infants. Paul had received a report from a woman named Chloe and a delegation that accompanied her. And in that report, there had been some specific allegations leveled against this church. It was those specific things that has led Paul to the point of calling them arrogant and saying that they were selfish or that they were immature. But what is it Paul heard that led him to have such harsh words for this church? What did Chloe say? Well, in the next section, starting in chapter 5, we get to find out what Chloe reported to Paul and what led Paul to be so upset. In the chapters that follow, Paul is going to take each and every allegation that Chloe has reported, and he's going to deal with them one after another. If you've read this letter before, you may have noticed that at about this point, it starts to just be one different topic after another. And that's because Paul is addressing what he has heard. And in each case, Paul is going to deal with what he's heard through admonition. Remember last week we defined that word in biblical terms. It is the combination of a rebuke with teaching, correcting someone while teaching them at the same time. That's admonition. So he is going to provide teaching in combination with discipline. Each of these issues, generally speaking, will take one chapter. And that's largely how. Men divided this letter into the chapters that we have in the the way it's presented in the canon. The chapter breaks were determined largely based on topic, not exclusively so. Some topics take two or three chapters, but you'll see clearly that at points along the way, when we start new chapters, we start new topics. Here's the first of those topics in chapter five. In this chapter, Paul addresses perhaps the most serious sin that he's heard about in the city of Corinth. 
And that sin is tolerating sexual immorality among the members of the church. He explains this as we begin in chapter five, verses one and two. Paul says in verse one, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Well, Paul says in verse one that it is actually reported that there is immorality amongst you. And this is a report we know has come from Chloe. Paul says it's actually now that word in Greek, holos, it literally translates completely, completely. So in this context, it's being used really as a euphemism. It's being used in a different sense, in the sense of incredulity. I I can't believe what I'm hearing. It seems completely out of the realm of possibility that this could be happening. It's that kind of response, hardly believing his ears. He says, I'm told you have in your midst someone engaging in immorality. And the word immorality in Greek is pornea. Pornea literally just means immoral sexual activity. And that's where we get pornography from. It's where we get other words of similar type. It's a general term. It's used for fornication, for prostitution, for any kind of sexual activity that is outside the bounds of marriage and therefore not permitted by scripture. Among Hellenistic Jews, Jews who had a Greek culture, the word would often be used for homosexuality as well. In the New Testament letters, you routinely see this word over and over again because it was such a common behavior in Greek society and it was such an anathema to the church. It was such an unhealthy thing for the church and it was so prevalent in society. Now, Paul says in this case, the thing he's heard that concerns him so much is that there's a man who has, it says here, his father's wife. Now, you notice it does not say his mother. The charge is not a man sleeping having sexual intercourse with his mother. It says with his father's wife. And that distinction suggests a stepmother. Paul uses the Greek verb to have in the present tense. So he says this is an ongoing activity. He is having, in other words. So we're talking about an ongoing sexual relationship. So when we put all this together, it's pretty clear what we're looking at. A man living with a woman who used to be, or perhaps still is, his stepmother. That's horrible. Divorce was common in Greek society and in Roman society, but they took a dim view of incest, even if it was this kind of stepmother incest. It's still outside the bounds of norm. So Paul says this kind of immoral behavior is being tolerated in the church, and yet it wouldn't even be tolerated by normal Greek or Roman society. But it's going on in the church. What kind of thinking has to be present in the church For men to think they have the freedom to engage in this kind of behavior when even the unbelieving world rejects it as too sinful. What kind of thinking must be in a church like that? Well, Paul names it in verse two. He says the church is showing evidence of arrogance. The word arrogance means just hubris, thinking we are above accountability, thinking we can do whatever we want, whatever outlandish behavior we might want, doing it unrestrained by the fear of consequences. That's what arrogance is means. So Paul says the fact that you would let this kind of thing happen and continue to happen in the church without doing anything about it can be defined as nothing else except arrogance, a willingness to tolerate tremendous immorality within the church. And what I must assume he means by that is when church gatherings happened, this couple was welcomed into the body just like any other couple. 
They didn't have to face any kind of judgment. They put no demands on them. They didn't ask them to repent. They didn't ask them to turn toward godliness. Paul says no one mourned this thing. They were arrogant. The proper thing, Paul says, is this church should have set this couple outside the fellowship of the church until they repented and they corrected their behavior. What Paul is referring to here, of course, is church discipline, which is a process of using the influence of the body of Christ to motivate members of the body to put away sin and to lead lives that please the Lord. The church really doesn't have a lot of weapons at its disposal when trying to encourage godly living among its members. The church has a very limited set of weapons in this battle against sin. For the most part, we can admonish, we can counsel, we can pray, and when necessary, we can set people outside fellowship. But frankly, that's it. It's the collective influence of the body on its members that offers the greatest opportunity for us to advance the purpose of godliness in everyone's individual life. So while the sin of this couple is very significant, this immorality is very significant, take note of where Paul places his greatest critique. He reserves his greatest criticism not for the couple, but for the church that tolerates them. The church's failure to put this couple out of fellowship is Paul's principal concern in this chapter. Every church body will encounter some measure of bad behavior within its members from time to time. I mean, we are human beings. We have sin. So we know that from time to time that sin is going to surface in the members of our body. We know that. And sometimes it's going to be pretty egregious sin. In this case, it was. But no matter the level of the sin, the test of maturity and sobriety in our congregation, in any church, is how do we respond to those things when they happen? Do we acknowledge it? Do we confront it? Do we address it? How did Paul expect this church to respond? If they are arrogant for their lack of response, then we should ask, what would the appropriate response have been? Well, he gives that in verses 3 through 5. He begins to explain what should be done with this couple. Verse 3 says, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is actually a fairly rare thing. This passage is quoted a lot. I've seen it misused. I've seen it misunderstood. But it's fairly rare. This is a very rare expression of Paul's apostolic authority. You don't see this anywhere else. Paul says he has executed, past tense, he has executed judgment upon this man from a distance. Paul was not in Corinth at the moment, but he speaks from a distance, which is what he means by absent in the body. He speaks from a distance saying, my apostolic powers did not stop at the city limits of Corinth. So even though I'm not physically present, by spirit, by my spiritual power over this church, as it was given to me by Christ, I'm going to use my authority from a distance, and I'm going to direct a certain outcome in this matter, because you have not done it for yourself. So he says he's already made a determination or a judgment for how this couple is to be disciplined, and that judgment will now take place. Remember, we said last week, I think it was, that The apostles had powers to execute earthly judgment 
according to the power God had given them on Christ's behalf and for the good of the church. And we saw last week Peter putting Ananias and Sapphira to death over the sin of lying. And this, I would say, is Paul's Ananias and Sapphira moment. This is him doing what Peter has done in the book of Acts. So what exactly is Paul commanding? What is he expecting to see happen as a result of his judgment? Well, first, notice in verse 3, Paul says he's disciplining only the man in this situation. And that's in keeping with culture and law. This woman was also guilty of sin. Paul, I'm sure, would agree with that if he were standing here. But the woman was presumed to be a victim of male authority under these circumstances. We have a similar way of viewing things today. If you have a teacher who has sexual relationships with one of her students, the teacher is prosecuted, not the student. That's largely a function of age, but it's also a function of this role responsibility differential. When you have the person in responsible position of authority, they're held to a different standard than the ones underneath their authority. And that was true in Greek society as well when it came to men and women. A man had all the power and a woman had very little. So it would be very easy for the woman to claim that she was forced into this and had no choice. And the law would be on her side. So I don't believe that Paul is excusing her sin. But Paul is understanding the times and the culture and saying, I can solve the problem by getting rid of one of them because it takes two to tango. And if one is set outside the church, then this relationship will no longer be taking place in the church, which is the key issue. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to address the man. And second thing he's going to do is he's going to do it publicly. Paul requires that the process of putting this man outside of fellowship take place when the entire church is gathered and We don't know exactly how that process would have unfolded, but we can imagine pretty simply how it might happen. You'd probably expect the leaders of the church to explain to the congregation the circumstances that brought the gathering together and the nature of the sin and the issue at hand. And then the leaders would have announced to the congregation that Paul, their apostle, speaking from a distance, had made a determination that this is now the outcome that must follow. This man is going to be put outside Fellowship, And what that means literally is excommunication. The Catholic Church uses that term and others have misused it. But its meaning is simple. The word excommunication means cutting off communication, cutting off fellowship. It is the opportunity for us to discipline a member in the body. The third thing Paul says is the man's personal consequence for this sin will be to see his flesh destroyed at the hands of Satan, yet his spirit saved. This is the part that gets us all fascinated on the one hand and a bit concerned on the other. We're not exactly sure what Paul's expecting. We're not sure what this looks like. We wonder how broadly applicable is this? Let's take a look at the text. Paul's describing, as I said, excommunication, the cutting off of fellowship. That is, of being set outside the church is going to leave him without the support structure of the body of Christ, whatever that was whether it was opportunity for friendship and fellowship, whether it extended into business relationships, whether it extended into the protection of the flock against persecution, safety in numbers. But whatever form it took, there was a structure of support that would be missing for this man. And then Paul says, the Lord is going to permit Satan to attack this man and to do so in such a way that his earthly life will come to a premature end. Similar, in a sense, to what we see in the book of Job, where the Lord must grant Satan permission, but in doing so, Satan has unleashed a certain amount of license to do what he would prefer to do. In the case of Job, God made very clear that Satan could not take his life. But in this case, Paul, it says, based on the power God has given him and his insight for the will of Christ, he has said, this is the proper thing. This man's flesh will perish. 
he will die. Now, how did that actually take place? Well, we can imagine a lot of different ways that would be perfectly reasonable. Disease. Maybe disease as a result of his sexual behavior. Roman persecution. Average, ordinary violence from some thief or robber. Who knows? Could be supernatural. He could have just been swallowed up into the earth like in Numbers. The point is not how. The point is that Satan has the power to do these sorts of things, to take the body and kill it, if that be God's choice. So this man is dying. You only have to look back to what I mentioned earlier in Peter's story out of Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They died just by the word of the apostle. So any possible method could be used by God to achieve this outcome. His earthly life is cut short. Now, in verse 4, Paul says he does this by the power given to him by the Lord as an apostle. Now, if you take that point out of this narrative, you are in danger, potentially, of misusing what you just read. Paul says, I'm going to do something now from a distance that I can do because I'm an apostle. Which begs, obviously, a conclusion for us. If you are not an apostle, you would be foolish to assume you can do or anyone can do these sorts of things today. I'm certainly not saying God is above or beyond taking our earthly life for the cause of sin. The scripture tells us he can do that and often does. But to do it through the agency of a representative like this apostle, that is unique. And it was unique to the times of the church because the apostles themselves were unique to a period of the church age. And so we would not expect that today. I, as a leader in this church, or John, or Rick, or Dave, or anyone else who might have that role, could never stand up and say, right now I'm out of town on a business trip, but I heard that so-and-so did this terrible thing. I want you to let them know. I've judged them from here. They're going to fall dead tomorrow. It doesn't happen that way. Thank goodness, too, because I've irritated people in the past. I wouldn't want, wouldn't want to suffer the consequence. So what we learn immediately is it's possible. It happened. It happened because... Paul had the authority to make it happen. The exact details of how it transpired are not given because they really don't matter. We know that this man was set outside fellowship and then subsequent to that point, he dies. Then Paul says there was a good outcome intended and achieved through this judgment. And that, he says, is that the man's spirit is saved. And this is where I think we get concerned or potentially concerned Because it raises questions that don't seem to fit in the Bible for some of us. For example, what does saved mean in this context? Does it mean he wasn't a believer and this is his way to become a Christian? What are we saying doctrinally about this outcome? Well, the key to interpreting this statement is found in the phrase at the very end of that last verse I read. In the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord. That day refers to the judgment day. When the Lord judges believers and assigns reward. This is not the day in which we receive salvation. This isn't the moment that he became a believer. Paul is talking about a man who is a believer. And so Paul is saying, I am trying to preserve, i.e. save this man's eternal reward. Whatever little may remain of it at this point, I'm going to save it. I'm going to preserve it for this man by ending his sin early. The point is, it's better for this man's earthly life to be cut short than it is for him to go on sinning like this for another decade or two decades or however long he might live. And in that time, lose more of what God may offer him in inheritance, because every day this man lives and continues in this sin, his heavenly account balance is dropping. That's the way to understand this in the context of what Paul wrote two chapters earlier 
in 1 Corinthians 3. It's like a man who has a 401k and he's dipping into it every month to pay for his lifestyle, to pay for his fleshly desires. That Christian is in danger of losing everything the Lord may have stored up for him in his inheritance in the kingdom. And so the best option for this man is that he repent. That's clear. But in the absence of repentance, the next best thing is to minimize the damage he's inflicting on himself and, of course, on others. And that's the other benefit. Paul is taking out the one bad apple so that the rest of the body of Christ is being preserved from the effects of that man's sin. This is sobering truth, isn't it? Do you ever consider that it could be better for someone in their eternal destiny and their eternal judgment that they die early than live a long, sinful life? As a Christian, we're saying now, not as an unbeliever, for there are no rewards for the unbeliever. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord, Scripture says. So we're talking about believers. And the Lord is a Lord who is loving and generous, but he is also demanding. And he is also perfectly just in his judgments. We all tend to minimize our own mistakes. We honestly don't judge ourselves perfectly righteously very often. For if we did, we would be crushed by the awareness of our own sin, of our own death. We round the corners. We conveniently forget some of the things we do. We don't see it from the perspective of a holy and just God. But Paul understood that perspective. And if we use the time God has given us to serve him well, Paul said earlier in chapter 2, this, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but just as it is written, things which I have not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul was reminding us back in chapter 2 that God has the power to reward us beyond anything we can imagine. Anything you might want in this world. You know, the prosperity gospel that's preached in churches around the world is a heretical lie. But that is not to say there isn't prosperity preached in the Bible. The Bible preaches of eternal reward for earthly sacrifice. The Bible says, with eyes for eternity and a heart to please the Lord, the Lord is a good and gracious father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. And he can reward in a way far beyond anything you can even imagine or want in this world. That's the goodness of God. But the Lord is also a righteous judge and he must take into account our rebellion and our unholiness and our faithlessness. Now, he is not holding those sins against us for the sake of righteousness. Scripture says that by faith alone, we are declared righteous because we have been given Christ's righteousness. So we're not talking here about somehow a balance in the sky that says, Oh, you've got some good things, Steve, but you've got some sin, too, and I'm going to sort of weigh all of these. No, 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 no. We've got to be careful about walking off this cliff into areas that are not doctrinally correct. But Scripture does say that though we are saved by faith alone and righteous on that basis entirely, having been made righteous in our position before God, we now have an opportunity to please him through service. By how we serve, we will be rewarded. And so if our service is not pleasing, then our reward will be less. And Paul says in chapter three that it could get to the point of being zero. Coming through as through fire with nothing. Peter reminds us of this in first Peter. In first Peter 117, he says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. 
If you address Father in heaven as the one who impartially judges, if you acknowledge God in heaven is going to be your impartial judge, and emphasis here is on impartial, perfect, even-handed, not giving you the benefit of the doubt, he says he will judge you according to each one's work. If you know that's true and you believe that, then Peter says, well, then that only leaves one necessary and proper conclusion for each of us. Conduct yourselves in fear and then he adds, during your time of stay on earth. Doesn't that just sound temporary all by itself? Just the way he says it. While you are staying on earth for a little while, be sure to conduct yourself with fear, knowing that God is a perfect and impartial judge. That's the motivation we have. So I want you to consider some of the warning signs that the apostles have given us concerning how that day will go if we persist in disobedience. Listen to some things that the writer of Hebrews said concerning how that day may go. If we are not well prepared, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Same fire that Paul talks about in first Corinthians three. Then you jump down to verse 30 in that chapter and the writer says, For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember, he says he's judging his people. Now, this is the judgment of believers. Then in verse 35, the writer says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have the faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, the writer of Hebrews ends with the same sense that Paul uses in chapter five of of first Corinthians to the preserving of the soul. To the preserving of the reward is what he's speaking of. To the preserving of what will be ours in eternity. Don't shrink back. Press on. Don't lose what opportunity God has given. Do the will of God. There is a great reward. God will judge his people. That's what Hebrews 10 is talking about. Paul delivered this man to Satan to end his life as a last ditch effort to rescue his soul from the judgment that awaits him. Don't minimize the Lord's judgment just because you have salvation. That, I think, is another lie of the enemy that has become very common in the church today. We have our fire insurance, as people say. We have our salvation. And so licentiousness is right around the corner. Whatever I want to do now, I can do because, after all, I'm saved. What difference does it make? According to the scripture, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It makes a big difference how we live. So Paul directs three things. Let's summarize. He directs the man be set outside fellowship. The moment of discipline be public and the earthly punishment be taken in the hope of obtaining a better spiritual outcome for this man. Those three principles have to guide how we practice church discipline when and necessary. We do it. Those same three principles. First, we have to address willful sinning within the body of Christ by confronting those who participate in it. We have to. Paul never suggests, by the way, that we form little squads of inspectors who run around seeking out sin or investigating. You know, the intent here is not to become busybodies in other people's life. That's not the intent at all. 
We're talking about a situation in which immorality comes to our attention, in which the sin of these people or whoever we're talking about, individual or couple or whatever, becomes so public, we are forced to contend with it in a public way. When immorality in any form comes to our attention, we have to have as a body enough love and enough courage that we're going to act on the news. And the New Testament gives us all the parameters for how we are to do that in the right way. There are some steps we're to take in private. Then there are some steps we take with leaders. And then ultimately, if you're not getting through to somebody, there are steps you have to take that are public. And that's the second principle. When our private efforts to correct sin fall short, the church body has to be willing to take matters public. And that means public in here, not public out there but public to the church body. And to do so, not with an intent to shame per se, that's I think an indirect outcome and sometimes a healthy one, but that's not the purpose in it. The purpose is so that the group's knowledge of this situation can be useful to putting added pressure on that individual to do the right thing, to repent and to walk from that sin in the hope of restoring fellowship with the body. That's the intent. At the very least, if this person continues to resist the will of God and the will of the church, then at least the rest of the church has some motivation to steer clear of that same behavior because they've just seen a public display of what comes from that kind of behavior. So at least there's that benefit in it. Then thirdly and lastly, if all else fails, we have to be willing to take hard steps. Specifically, the one scripture gives us, which is that we set people outside fellowship. Now, in Paul's day, that was far more powerful than it is today, unfortunately. In Paul's day, you had one church in a city. If you lost the opportunity to fellowship with the church at Corinth, there wasn't the Second Baptist Corinth Church or the Third Presbyterian Corinth Church. It was the church or nothing. In our world, we split the thing up a million ways and there's one on every corner. And we don't communicate amongst us so that church discipline doesn't flow across all of these various congregations. So setting someone outside fellowship is probably a less effective technique now than it may have been in the past. But nonetheless... We would still do it if needed because we protect this body from the sin of that one individual participating in our body. Remember, we're doing this for eternal reasons. We're doing this in the hope that we correct their behavior for their own eternal reward. And we're doing it for our own sakes because the risks to us are equally bad. Remember, Paul criticized the church because of what they were doing with this person. And Paul called the church arrogant, not the individual. So what we're saying is there is a possibility that if we tolerate sin within the body, you and I sin more as a result. And then it's our eternal reward on the line. You know, it's one thing for you to say, well, I don't want to put so and so out. I feel bad about that. What if I tell you, okay, but if you don't, you lose eternal reward. Does that change the equation? You see the problem? I know of a case a few years ago when there was a church who exercised this discipline process with a great positive outcome. In this particular case, there were two teenagers in the church, active, participating members in the church, and they engaged in immorality, premarital sex, and the result was a pregnancy. And that meant their sin would be brought to light sooner or later. And when that did come to light with the parents, the parents brought it to the church leaders, the elders. And the leaders called this teenage couple to come to account before them and before the body. And they instructed them to come to the front of the church during a full service, the two of them, and publicly confess their sin before the entire church and repent of it. And the teens were repentant, and they did as they were asked. They agreed. They came up. They submitted to church leaders, and they made their public confession. 
And I wasn't there, so I've only heard this secondhand. But from what I understand, the results were profound in that church and for that couple. The church body was stunned, as you might expect, but they immediately embraced the teens. They wept with them. They committed to helping them through that pregnancy. The church loved on them all the way through. And then at the end, I think the girl gave the child up for adoption. But in the process of that, the Lord was glorified because you have the teens transparently being restored into fellowship rather than hiding and pretending it's no problem and the parents acting like it's not a sin and everyone sort of covering it over because who wants to have an uncomfortable moment? No, we dealt with it. It's sin when you do that and you need to own up to it because in the day of your judgment, you will. So they were restored in fellowship. Secondly, the body benefited because the body was reminded of the need to remain chaste before marriage, that there are consequences when we don't, And that the body is here to help one another, even when we fall, not to condemn, not to judge in the sense that we look down on them as if we're superior. That's the kind of judgment we're trying to avoid. No, it was an effort to allow the repentant heart to do its work in that individual and then be met with grace from the body. But see, grace in the face of repentance has value. Ignoring a problem when there hasn't been repentance is further sin on top of sin. That was the difference. And then lastly, the entire church witnessed the word of God lived out. Which is, I think, perhaps its most important benefit. Because this moment comes and is gone. But what sticks in our mind is when we do what the Lord has said, good things happen. It may involve pain. It may involve trial. But even in that, good things result when we do what the Lord says. If you ignore sin, if I ignore sin, if our leaders ignore sin among our members or excuse it or approve it, then the church body is guilty of an offense worse than the sin of that individual, which is why Paul criticized the church more than he did the individual. Look at verses six through eight. He explains the problem of a church that contemplates the approval or the tolerance of sin. In verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. And therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says in verse six, you know, you're boasting. I don't think what he meant was that the church walked around saying, hey, guess what? We got a guy in the church who sleeps with his stepmother. How do you like that? They're not boasting like that. They're boasting by not dealing with it. They're celebrating this immoral relationship by accepting it, by thinking that grace somehow makes it okay or covers it over. When you approve someone else's sin, the Bible says, you condemn yourself by that approval. Romans 14:22, Paul says, "The faith which you have Have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself by what he approves. So there is a sin of approving other people's sin. And we can be guilty of that if we allow bad behavior to continue unchecked. Paul says this is a form of arrogance and it leads to bigger problems. And he draws a metaphor to yeast and to the feast of unleavened bread, which is celebrated in the week immediately after Passover. The analogy makes sense. We all get it. If I put a little bit of yeast into a large lump of dough, the entire lump is impacted by that little bit of additional yeast. It's not as though part of the dough rises. It all rises because of that introduction of a small thing. That's why the Bible loves to use leaven or yeast 
as a picture of sin in our bodies. There's no part of our flesh that's not sinful. And when you take sin in the case of the body of Christ and you bring it in in the form of one person or two people who are living an outwardly, publicly immoral or sinful life in some respect, and we don't deal with it, eventually their sin becomes the sin of the body as a whole. It comes in subtle ways, but you can see it. The rest of the body is likely to look upon that person and draw bad conclusions about what's true and what's necessary. For example, if we had a couple in here in which the man and the woman were not married and were living together and had been for years, that's an immoral relationship. And if that had been allowed to just continue unchecked in the body of Christ, we might assume just because it's not being dealt with that that's permissible. That the leaders think it's okay. We might assume that the church uh, leaders don't care about that kind of stuff. Or we might assume that that sin doesn't have any negative consequences. Or we might assume that our personal behaviors and personal choices don't matter to the church body or doesn't have any reflection on our faith. We might assume that salvation by grace through faith means that we can do whatever we want. We can make assumptions after assumptions that are all wrong and lead us to do similar mistakes because of what one group or one individual is allowed to do unchecked in the body. Conversely, if that sin is dealt with in a loving but but strict manner, with the intent to rehabilitate and with the hope of reconciliation, then we get a whole different set of assumptions, don't we? Good ones, healthy ones, ones that promote holiness. You might have overlooked others' sin in the past because you thought, you know, that's their problem, it's not my business, and really it's a very uncomfortable thing anyway. I don't want to have to deal with it. Perhaps you assume that only they will suffer for their own sin. So really, what business is it of mine anyway? I know I've got my life on track. Their life, well, that's their problem. But remember, their sin in this body has the potential to rob you and I of our eternal reward. If that sin, unchecked, becomes a little bit of leaven in this lump of dough. So the solution, Paul says, is to cut the cancer out before it kills the body. To see repentance and to see reconciliation. But our last resort is to distance ourselves from that cancer. Paul says, don't celebrate, don't approve sin, celebrate sincerity and truth. So, friends, let's hold up values of honesty and transparency, but not become busybodies with an unhealthy concern for someone else's personal life. Let's reward sincerity, confession and repentance while not condoning selfishness and immorality and rebellion and arrogance and unholiness. Let's all seek for the good reward in the day of the Lord and do it together. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that our behaviors matter, that our choices matter, but also for the fact, Father, that we are forgiven for our sin. Our sin is not remembered. It's removed from us as the east is from the west. So we can live, Father, in the hope of of the knowledge that you have taken those sins and judged them with Christ on the cross. But, Father, I pray you would also give us the mind to consider that if you did those things for us, then we owe you everything. And that our life now, Father, must be a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing to you. I pray, Father, that we would be better together than apart, and that as a body we would lovingly call everyone to live a holy and pleasing life. But if you show us, Father, where there are opportunities to call men and women out of sin, that you would give us the courage to do so, again, privately, lovingly, in the way you've instructed But if need be, Father, as well, publicly and sternly, so that at the end we may win them one way or the other. I thank you, Father, that we have...
the word of God, to guide us in these matters. Pray that we never leave it, Father.